Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I am Matthew. Welcome to Audio Judo. Like you said, your podcast of music discovery. Um, we are Matthew and Kyle, your hosts. Oh, yes, We're we are. joined by our engineer and producer, Randy, for what we hope to be another entertaining and educational music episode. That felt so formal. All right. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier music podcast network. Now, we have done... A number of interviews on this program. Yes. And we, uh, while we probably weren't the best at it at the beginning, I think I'd like to say we got much better. But interviewing, especially good interviewing, is a difficult craft, and not everyone does it well. Uh, There's a podcast on Pantheon called Performance Anxiety that specializes in the long-form interview, and his stuff is really, really good. You need to check it out. The interviews are thoughtful and fun, very entertaining. Also, this guy is prolific as hell. He puts out episodes at, at the rate of like two or three a week. Whoa. Uh, it's very impressive, and the work is really, really good. So check out Performance Anxiety on Pantheon today. Wow. I'm going to have to check that one out. I, have not, I haven't even heard of that one. It's uh, it's excellent. That's one of the big problems with Pantheon, though, that it's I too have. too many? There's too many goddamn podcasts on there, <laughs> and they're all good. And every one, I'm like, oh, well, that sounds interesting. And then I add it to my podcast list, and I'm like, I don't have time to listen to all these. Yeah, how do I get? How do I pick one? I'm just going to stop sleeping is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to spend the night laying in bed listening to podcasts. When did you start sleeping? Uh, a few months ago. See, I had some free. I had a free weekend. We've been doing like, this for two years now. When you went ahead and started sleeping? Yeah. I didn't even tell you. It's, it's been selfish very refreshing. Very selfish. been very relaxing. Uh, so today, Kyle wants to talk about his side hustle. Yes, my side hustle is a private dancer. Right? <laughs> 1984 album, Private Dancer by I, the legendary Tina Turner. Uh, for the right price, I will do what you want me to do. <laughs> uh, once again, Kyle goes outside of the box and my relative comfort zone. You're welcome. By picking one of the biggest sellers of the 80s mm-hmm. and music icon, Tina Turner. Right? I mean, I, it's like we said a couple episodes ago, uh, we were going to try to uh, correct our wrong yeah. of uh, not covering a lot of women. Uh, uh, artists. And I think that Tina Turner is one of the best places to, to, I mean, we did Adele a couple of weeks ago. We're doing Tina Turner now. Yeah. Uh, she is amazing. She, she is, is amazing. She has had basically two completely separate careers. Uh, uh, and this album, Private Dancer, is basically the beginning of her second career. Yeah. It's one of the 1001 albums you must hear before mm-hmm. you die, according to Michael Lydon. Number 46 by Rolling Stone is one of the top 100 albums of the 80s. This released this out al- that list was released in 1989. So I actually thought that would have been higher on the list than yeah. 46. Uh, and in 2003, noted music authority VH1 Ooh. named this album the 95 uh, 95th greatest album of all time. Wow. And thank That's you, VH1. And in 2020, the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And besides that, it was a huge seller, which I'm sure we will get to in a in a bit. Yeah. But it was historical. It was significant. And for a while, in that magical year of 1984, mm-hmm. because let us remember, all of the massive albums that were released that year, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, Purple Rain by Prince, 1984 by Van Halen, Like a Virgin by Madonna, the Footloose soundtrack, on and on and on. And despite all that, this record of finely crafted pop songs with a soul undercurrent not only held its own, but would sell millions and reinvent Tina Turner and give her career a second boost. And I think we should talk about Tina Turner for a bit before we get started on the record. Absolutely. She was born Anna Mae Bullock. Uh, November 26, 1939, in Brownsville, Tennessee, which is right near Nutbush, Tennessee, uh, which becomes later uh, very important. Uh, she's often called the queen of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, her backstory is super sad, though, to say the least. And I, I don't think we should delve too deeply into it, because uh, if you really want to learn about it, I, Tina, the uh, autobiography autobi- she wrote, yeah. is amazing. Uh, I read it several years ago. And I swear to God that I owned a copy of it for a while, and I couldn't find it when I was doing the research for this. So apparently I either gave it away to somebody or sold it or something, but uh, it is worth a a read. I have some highlights. Essentially, she was, you know, similar to Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Her first exposure to music was through the church. Uh, She used to sing with the Nutbush Spring Hill Baptist Choir until age 11. Her mom left the family, um, and she wanted to escape the abuse she had been suffering for years, her mom, which a pattern that would continue into Tina's life. Sadly. And her dad moved to Detroit, so Anna Mae and her sisters moved back to Brownsville, 
where she lived with her maternal grandmother. At 16, her grandmother died. She moved to St. Louis. And at that kind of point, then, you know, 1957, her and her sisters going to nightclubs in St. Louis. Yeah, and obviously after all that turmoil in her tri- childhood, she was over. She was good for the rest of her life, right? Uh, Nothing bad was going to happen. Yeah, she's right? completely fine. Uh, starts hanging out at a, a place called the Manhattan Club in East St. Louis. And playing that evening was Ike Turner and his band, the Kings of Rhythm. Tina was impressed with him and asked if she could sing in the band. And Ike never returned her call. Yeah, he did say he would call her, and but uh, did not. He did not. Later in 57, she tracked uh, down the Kings of Rhythm again, got a hold of a microphone during their intermission, and sang a B.B. <laughs> King ballad. Ike asked if she knew more songs. She did, and sang with them for the rest of the night, and became the featured vocalist in the band. 1960, he wrote a song for another art- artist called A Fool in Love. That artist failed to show up for the ses- session, and since they had already paid for the time in the studio, Tina suggested she sing it instead. Sounds like a good idea. Ike agreed, as he had planned on erasing her vocals anyway, and eventually putting the other guy's yeah. vocals over top of it, until a local uh, DJ... Dave Dixon convinced Ike to send her version into the labels. Ended up in the hands of Juggy Murray. Great name. President of the R&B label Sue Records, who loved it. And he bought the track for 25 grand, convinced Ike to make her the star of the show. And that was actually when when Ike basically forced the name Tina Turner onto her. Because it rhymed with? Sheena. Queen of the Jungle. Mm -hmm. And in true Ike fashion, he trademarked the name Tina Turner just in case. Yeah. Anime didn't work out. He could put another girl in her place, and she would be Tina Turner. What a horrible, horrible douchebag. He's move. a dirtbag. Right? So, A Fool in Love was released in 1960, became a hit right away, peak at number two on the R&B chart, 20, uh, number 27 on the Hot 100. After this, Ike scrapped the Kings of Rhythm name and renamed the band the Ike and Tina Turner Review with the Ikeettes, and they were relentless Tours. Oh my God, yes. At one point, playing 90 consecutive nights across the, the country. They were so successful and profitable, profitable that they were one of the few African-American acts to play desegregated audiences in the South. Mm-hmm. And through the 60s, they toured, recorded constantly, scoring minor hits here and there. In 1965, their luck changed. They met Phil Spector in L.A., and he was desperate to record with her. So they signed with Spector's label in 66, recorded what he considered the best thing he has ever produced. Wow. The song River Deep Mountain High. That song never got above number 88 in the States, but because who she was working with, um, it would garner the attention of the Rolling Stones, who would have Ike and Tina open for them on the 67 UK tour, which is just a crazy mix. Right. Later in 67, she would become the first female artist and first black artist to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. So they recorded, toured, feverishly for the next four years. They were also all over television, both in the U.S. and Europe. They were everywhere. They were everywhere. They did so many performances between like 1962 and 1975 or six. I could not get a count because every source I would look at, I was like, oh, there's like 30 on this one. That's impressive. And then I'd look at the next one. I was like, oh, these are 25 more. And then I'd look at another story. Oh, here's eight more that aren't on those other two lists. Those records are lost to time, though. Yeah. I don't think there's any way you can really track. There's a few. There are a few floating around on YouTube if you go look at them. Uh, but very. But how could they really get, like... They're very few and far between, and I think a lot of them are, like, because the, you know, it was an episode of The Tonight Show that was so iconic, they had the right guest or whatever, right. and they happened to archive that one episode. But so many of the others are just gone forever. Yeah. In 71, they were, they recorded the Creedence Clearwater Revival yeah. song, Proud Mary, which would become their biggest hit. Topped the charts at number four, sold over a million copies, would win them the Grammy for Best R&B Performance, and would become her signature song for years to come. Yeah. Uh, they would continue to churn out hits for the next several years, including Nutbush City Limits. But in 76, on a way to uh, a gig in Dallas, their arguing turned violent again, and Tina after almost two decades of abuse, decided to flee and hit out at a friend's house before filing for divorce. And she would then start the second leg of her career. Yeah. And for years, she kind of languished in mediocrity. Yeah. uh, Recording a few solo records of no great value and supplemented her income by appearing on Hollywood Squares or Mm. Donnie and Marie or the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. She did do two albums in this time, uh, one called Rough and one called Acid Queen. Yeah. 
they are both not fantastic albums. No. <laughs> um, uh, forgettable, as I'd, I'd yeah. say isn't a, a word. Uh, side note, Acid Queen uh, is the name of the character she played uh, in the Who's Tommy rock opera. I know, it freaked the, the hell out of me. 1975 version. Freaked me out. She is great I know. as that character. Fantastic. Not at 12 years old. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Uh, but by 83, she was pretty much a nostalgia act, performing yeah. in uh, hotel ballrooms and clubs. A, l- a lot of like lounge singer feel to me. Right. You know, small venues, like you said, hotel ballrooms, things like that, which is nuts when you think, oh, that was what Tina Turner was doing in right. the early 80s. Fine. So Capitol Records signed her and she recorded the Al Green song, Let's Stay Together, which became a fairly nice hit for her and reached number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100, number one on the dance chart. Following that surprise hit, Capital greenlit a full-length studio album, mm-hmm. which would become Private Dancer. Recorded in only two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. And it became this astounding success that basically launched the second half of her career. Yeah, it kind of abandoned the R&B style that she yeah. had sung for years and replaced it with a high pop sheen, kind of accessible songs. A lot of covers. A lot of covers. Album was released in May 84 to great critical acclaim. Rolling Stone loved it. The LA Times said that her voice melts vinyl. (laughs) Which could be a compliment. I guess. Even our old (laughs) pal Robert Christigau said that she was able to deliver with honesty the middle brow angst of contemporary professional songwriting and remain in control of four different production teams to give the album seamless authority. Does anyone know what the hell this guy is talking about? He does a lot of drugs, I'm sure. He yeah. no, then, Let me rephrase that. In my opinion, Robert Christgau does a lot of drugs. Right? He did a lot of drugs. Very, in my opinion. In my opinion. Your opinion's wrong. Got to cover myself there. Deliver uh, the honesty, the middle brow angst of contemporary professional songwriting. Uh, in my opinion, Robert Christgau did a lot of English major work uh, at some point in his life. <laughs> so wait a second. Hold on. She is newly signed to a label, has two weeks to record the record. Do you think she's really in control of anything? Because I don't. No. They're slapping these together, and I don't think she's around for the mixing, so that's just more well, Christigau's boobery. I honestly don't think she could have been, but <laughs> I think that I think that the timetable was so tight for this. That's why there were so many, there are a lot of producers on this album, and I think it was because they literally recorded all the raw stuff and then sent it off to four different producers and said, make this work, and then slapped it together. And I will say that is, to me, the weakest part of this album it does not necessarily fit together. Oh, no. I think that it is a good album. I think it's worth a listen. I don't think that it has... And I, 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 and think, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. I, we're, I think we're going to talk about all that stuff because, yeah, I think we're, we're, yeah. we're in lockstep there. Do you have the sales figures for this mighty album? Peaked at number three on the Billboard 200. I think you said that already. And number two in the UK. Uh, I did. Certified. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, certified five times platinum in the U.S. Sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Diamond seller. Right. Turner won four Grammys related to this album. Uh, best female rock vocal performance for Better Be Good to Me. Uh, best female pop vocal performance for What's Love Got to Do With It. Record of the year for What's the What's Love Got to Do With It single. And song of the year for What's Love Got to Do With It. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. Uh, And in 2020, like you did say before, this album was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation of the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Mm -hmm. It's all very impressive. It is. Especially with with what was going on in the music industry. Yeah. I mean, albums were selling left and right. Mm -hmm. This is a huge time frame for music. MTV was probably two years, three years old at this Mm -hmm. point. So everything's like just going through the roof. so it's huge. Cover art? Cover art. It's super, super simple. It's Tina Turner sitting seductively on a folding chair with a black cat on the floor in front of her. And there's some text in the upper left corner that says, Tina Turner, private dancer. She's got one of her trademark really tall wigs oh on. Oh my God, it's huge. It's a massive wig. The photo was taken by Peter Ashworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, creative director on this was Sam Gay. Art director was Roy Kohara and uh, designed by John O'Brien. So did you look up Peter Ashworth? Uh, a little bit. He's done a lot of photography. A lot uh, of albums. He yes. took, he, took uh, he, he did Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Eurythmics, Thompson Twins, Duran Duran. He also took the photo for one of my very favorite album covers of all time, Jimmy Page's 1988 record, Outrider. Ooh, I'm not but even familiar with that. The album is pretty lousy, but oh. the cover is very cool. Oh, I'll have to check it out. Ashworth is now a very accomplished fashion photographer. Mm-hmm. And the design of the album, you have that, right? John O'Brien? Yes. 
Go ahead. Oh, I don't actually have oh. anything about it. I just have that it was John O'Brien. Yes, he's go, a California-based graphic designer who started a company called Art Ministry that, among other designs, like the graphics for Robin Hood Men in Tights oh, uh, and albums like this one and a Poison Record or two, they also designed the logo for Vegas's very own New York, New York Hotel and Casino. Oh. So that's very cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so, Kyle, I haven't really talked about the history. Well, one more thing oh, I yeah, got to tell you about that. Yeah. Uh, the title was actually chosen after the picture was taken. Mm -hmm. So Tina Turner saw the picture and was like, we got to call this private dancer, not what's love got to do with it, which is what they were originally. That's what they were going to call it. They knew that was the hit. They knew what's love got to do with. It was probably going to be the hit. So they were going to call the album that to increase sales. And she's like, no, I like this photo and I want to use it. Let's call it private dancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good choice. I think I do like that. So you were saying, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, so, uh, Kyle, I haven't talked about my history with this record up Ooh. until this point. Uh, I was un kind of unsure if I was gonna if I was going to, mm -hmm. knowing that people seem to like personal connections to the record. I think we might as well just go ahead and do it. So, I've known this record quite well since it first came out. My mom had a 1983 Chevy Cavalier station wagon, and it had a tape deck Ooh, in it. Oh yeah! This was the first car in our family to have a tape deck, so it was really cool um <laughs> she had two tapes in the car neil diamond's 1984 album primitive Ooh, very good and this album Ooh, uh, these were the only two for years so i got to know it pretty well <laughs> also uh my family had cable television dating back to 1981 and we had hbo occasionally they played concerts like elton john and madonna and tina turner hmm. and my mom used to watch that special every time it was on not because of tina but because of the sexy saxophonist. Ooh. So if you don't know who that is, the sexy sax man is Tim Capello. And that's his name, by the way, the sexy sax man. He played with <laughs> Turner for years in the 80s, and he was muscular, often shirtless and sweaty, and had a ponytail, and he used to gyrate and dance quite provocatively for a saxophonist. Go on. And it took me a while to realize that he was the draw for my mom's continued interest Oh. In at least the video part of the Tina Turner experience. Your mom had a little thing for the sexy sax man. It was the first time I ever noticed my mom take notice of someone else. And it was weird, but all in all, it was probably a, a healthy situation. And, you know, you just kind of put that in a box when you're little. But when you reflect on it years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So when you pick this record, it wasn't like I had to go back and listen to it 50 times like some of the others, because this <laughs> album is still pretty well planted in my mind. Tim Capello, the sexy sax man. Look him up. He was also in The Lost Boys. Oh. Fun fact, he's in The Lost Boys. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, do you have more before we go I was going to say, my mom also had this cassette. <laughs> Uh, she liked the sexy sax man? I don't know that she knew who the sexy sax man was, because I don't think we had HBO. Tim Capello. Tim Capello, the sexy sax man. I'll have to ask her sometime. Sexy sax man, Tim Capello. Mom, do you know who the sexy sax man is? Uh, Did Tim you enjoy him? You mean Tim Capello? Oh, no, she does. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to double check. But uh, yeah, this one, I, I feel like... I. I know for sure I heard this album a few times when I was a kid, but it was not the only album that was in the car. So I, had the, I said was Neil not, Diamond was in I'm there sorry, too. It was not one of two albums in the car. Pretty it sure was, she had the hots for Neil Diamond too. Oh, but you know, good choice. You start singing like Cracklin' Rosie or something, all bets are off. Right? Cracklin' Rosie. Boom, boom, boom. Should we take a quick break? Hey, and, let's take a break. Uh, come back into a track by track. Sounds good to me. You had one more thing. Before I do we went have to the one track? note we got to talk about before the track by track. So there are a lot of different versions of this album. Mm -hmm. Basically, the two that you will probably find most frequently are the international edition or the U.S. edition. The biggest difference between the two is that the international edition has a cover of "Help" by the Beatles on it, mm -hmm. uh, and the tracks are in a different order. However, for this episode, Matthew and I are going to be reviewing. The U.S. edition, the original release. Because America. Because America. <laughs> uh, no, just because, uh, you know, that was the original. That was the first one that came out. 
And I feel like that's, oh, that's, that's, what I meant. Yeah. that's the album, you know, as released originally. So I'm fine with that. But if you do go on, I know for sure the one on iTunes is the international release. So oh, great. Now that. I got to juggle all my notes. Right. You can go uh, hear that uh, version of Help if you really want to. It's not bad, but it's not great either. It's not great. It's different. Matthew, I might have been a queen. <laughs> yeah. Why did you say? <laughs> uh, wait. <laughs> yeah, you know. Just, where do you go from? Uh, where right, where do we it. go? We're from done. Then? We're done. Podcast over. Oh. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, first thing that is notable noticeable about this song is how lyrically complex the mm-hmm. song is. There's a lot packed into it. So the song was written by Jeanette Obstoge, producer Rupert Hine, and guitarist Jamie West Orham. Jeanette Obstoge was a lyricist, poet, and graphic artist who wrote for a, a, a few artists, namely The Fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some serious Fix connections on this record. Yes, there are. Uh, the other co-writer on the song, Jamie Westorm, was the guitarist for The Fix. Rupert Hine produced several of The Fix's records. Also, the lead singer of The Fix, Cy Cernan, sings background vocals on this song, and one other on the record. Uh, and this was about the time that their album Reached the Beach, was out, which included uh, one thing leads to another. So they gaining some popularity. Yeah. Um, and for my ear, this song could have easily been a fix song and very, mal- uh, very well may have been when they gave it to Turner in the first place. Um, and I'll get to Hein in a minute. Yeah, I was about to say, he actually took a week off from producing the album Phantoms for the fix yeah. to come and work on this album. And during that time, uh, he produced the song Better Be Good to Me and also wrote... I might have been a queen mm-hmm. uh, one night, like you said, with um, Jeanette Ostob. Uh, they were literally in Tina Turner's house talking about her beliefs. She's a Buddhist. She believes in reincarnation. Uh, she potentially may be the reincarnation of a pharaoh of Egypt, in her opinion. Who's to say? Right. Uh, but uh, in talking about all of that, they came up with this song. And it's uh, I-, I love the fact that you know, we talk about this all the time on on epi- different episodes. How sometimes some of the best songs just kind of come out of thin air because somebody starts talking about something, and they just write a song. Yeah, they. Ba- and I feel like that's what happened here. It basically told their story from the fields of Tennessee, being a sole survivor. That comes up. She uh, Turner converted to Buddhism in the mid seventies, and this song has elements of that reincarnation and that spirituality. Lyrical sections like this: "I'm a new pair of eyes and original mind." With my senses of old and the heart of a giant, and I'm searching through the wreckage for some recollection that I might have been queen. For every sage that falls, there's an ancient child. I mean, that's pretty complicated stuff for a pop album. That, yeah. Those lyrics sound more like prog rock. They sound a lot like prog rock. Um, and that being said, I really don't like the song much at all. When I listen to it... Uh, it, is, it is very poppy. Part of the reason, and this is present throughout the record is that it is so immediately dated to 1983 and 84. I mean, there is absolutely no denying. And I get it. We talked about some of this stuff on our Toad the Wet Sprocket episode, about how bands tend to buy into the sound of the time to capitalize on what is popular at the moment. And it helps to sell a lot of records because it's the flavor of the month. But it doesn't become timeless. It becomes dated a few years later because you want it to be current. And this was the sound of the moment. So let's talk about the purveyor of the sound on that on this record to some degree, because I believe all the producers used on this album utilize the same techniques, and that's Rupert Hine. Okay. So Rupert Hine was a British songwriter, producer, arranger, who worked for many of the biggest names in new wave pop during the 80s. Names like Thompson Twins, Howard Jones, the aforementioned Fix. He also worked with more rock-oriented pop as well. Stevie Nicks, Saga, Bob Geldof. But he is known for this really thin sound. Uh, Now, the reason why I know him so well is because he produced two Rush albums in the late 80s and early 90s. Ah. And I'm not his biggest fan. Uh, This was when, I believe, Rush was at its peak in terms of songwriting. So they had the prog thing, the super long pieces, and even the jazz synth thing. But their melodies were getting stronger, and they're playing more cohesive. Hein came in at this period and stripped the low end almost completely out of the band. So the two albums in question, Presto and Roll the Bones, were commercially successful, but they sound weak and thin, and that's the Hines sound. The bass, while present in like it is in this song, doesn't thicken the sound. It's used 
melodically, but not for muscle. Hmm. It's it very twangy almost. And the drums, like the rest of the record, and the sound of the times is so electronic and tinny sounding. And that's why this is an album I won't listen to very often, mm-hmm. I think, because the melodies are all right. Melodies are there, but that thin sound is just not satisfying to listen to, at least for me personally. Yeah, okay. Here, see what you guys think. All right. Yeah, the bass is present. It's just not doing anything. It's not thickening. It's not like powering it through. It's like you said, it is definitely a product of the 80s. It's definitely that sound of they were stripping the bass out. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. They were stripping all the low end out because that was the sound that they were going for at the time. And it's a it's a shame because I I do wonder, would this song sound better if it was re-engineered to have more low end? To not be quite as 80s as it, it sounds I like? I think absolutely. That's And all these, like you said, all these additions, besides the international and the and the US edition, there's like the remastered, the re-this, the yeah. re-this. Well, how come there's no remixed version? Like, seriously, take the masters, and instead of just remastering it and making it sound cleaner without, like, without hiss and all that, remix it to bring up the things that need to be you know, or mix down the things that are like so poppy in your head, like that twangy guitar, like yeah. take that down a notch, bring the bass up a little bit, give it some pop. So no missed opportunity, but what do I know? Go ahead. Do you want to ask the question? What's love got to do with it? I figured that was your next question. Tina Turner's first and only billboard hot 100 number one. It remained yeah. there for three Weeks. Three weeks. Sold a million and a half copies. Right. Won three Grammy Awards. Right. Used as the name of the biopic of Turner's life. Right. Uh, Tina Turner also became the oldest solo female artist to top the Hot 100 chart at age 44 until Cher took it from her with Believe. And at the time, Cher was 53 years old. 53. Uh, Uh, As a homosexual, I am legally required to say, but she only looked 35. (laughs) So, you do have to say that. I legally have to say that. If I don't, they take away my card. Oh so. boy, you don't, don't lose that. It's horrible. It's uh, hard to get back to. Uh, <laughs> name number uh, 309 on Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time, which seems about right to me. So, so I know this is a huge hit and generally a well-regarded so- uh, song, but listening to it recently, it just sounds so weak. <laughs> it's a doctor's office song now. Yeah. It's Muzak. I get the hook. Her delivery of it is pretty good, but it's just so light. And and I I grew up listening to like the Tina Turner with power. Yeah. And this just seems to like Well, you got to remember too. This is the uh, beginning of that rise. I know. This is the beginning of, of Tina. And you know, this song was uh it was written by Terry Britton and Graham Lyle, and it wasn't originally written for Tina Turner. Song was handed around for a while before mm-hmm. she recorded it. It was originally offered to Cliff Richard, uh, then Phyllis Hyman. Then Donna Summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, it was offered to somebody we all know and love, obviously, who did uh, an amazing job with it. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about the British band Bucks Fizz. Bucks Fizz. Who recorded it in February 1984, uh, sung by band member Bobby G. And it sounds like this. It's not a bad version, um, but they shelved it. I kind of dig that version, uh, actually. Tina Turner kind of came in and recorded her version, and it was such a huge smash that their album had not come out yet with this version on it. 
So they shelved it until the reissue of the album, Are You Ready, in 2000. Mm-hmm. Very um, interesting to me that it, it kind of got passed around for a while beforehand, and that so many of the singers were male that it was offered to. Mm-hmm. At least two. At least two, yeah. Uh, and who knows how many more it was actually offered to in that time. But, it, it's uh, a massive song. I get it. I get it. Because it's it, the melody, it's a well-written melody. Yeah. There's just sounds used, and and there's so much space in the song. Well, I don't mind space, but it's like emptiness space. It's yeah. bizarre. One part of the song that stands out, but also dates it so much, is the synth harmonica solo. That's yes. just so damn bouncy. <laughs> that solo was played by uh, Billy Livesey, uh, who has been involved in the Nashville music scene for a long time. Also of note from this song, some of the background vocals were provided by Tessa Niles. Our prog listeners will recognize that name from a number of albums in the genre, and in the genre such as Clutching at Straws by Marillion and the first solo record by Fish, A Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. Oh, and she has also appeared on about a hundred other recordings. So she has a very impressive list of credits. Cool. Do you have more? I do not, but I do have a clip yeah? of Tina Turner's version. Oh, let's hear that. Oh, what's love got to do? It's got to do it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do? It's got to do with it. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? That solo is a little indulgent. Uh, right yeah, there. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it fits, but it's a little indulgent. Oh, it does indulgent. fit. It does fit. Now, Kyle, all I have to say, just show some respect. Oh, that's the name of the next song. Oh, I was it. about to say never, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure how I feel about this song. It's a, it's a funky, upbeat guitar song. Uh, the guitar in this by Terry Britton carries the song, in my opinion. It sounds a little bit like this. So I've been racking my brain for a few weeks now because I know this song sounds like something else I've heard and mm-hmm. I can't figure it out for the life of me. Mm. It's been very frustrating. So if anyone out there could think of another song that this sounds like, please drop me a line at info at audiojudo.com or DM us on Twitter and let me know because I'm really starting to get pissed about it because I can hear <laughs> some other song in my head and I cannot get it out of there. Oh, I hate that. I so, hate that feeling. Anyway, it's another song that's pretty thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written Very by 80s. Terry Britton again. Uh, also, songwriter Sue Schifrin. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote for many people, but is more widely known for being the wife of 70s teenage heartthrob David Cassidy. Oh. <laughs> David Cassidy. Oh. Right? You're getting all partridge family. I am a little getting partridge. I'm getting a little partridged over here. Whoa. You try some. No. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, damn it. Okay, as far as the the song goes, it's another semi-autobiographical song written for Turner, and she delivers this one with a little more enthusiasm and gravel than the last two, Mm. which I appreciate. Those first two songs lack that Tina power that you're looking for. This song, well, it's not the best song in the the world. At least it takes a step in that direction. That bass is too snappy and not nearly low enough, and I believe part of the reason is because It's not a real bass at all. It's a synth (laughs) bass, and it sounds like it. (laughs) It's a keyboard bass. This This was definitely that period right before they had gotten over that hump where it went from you could tell it was an electronic instrument to you can't tell that it's an electronic instrument. Right, we're right there. Now, obviously, it could be be intentional. Is this pre-MIDI? No, MIDI's been around since the mid-70s, I think. Oh, my God. Right? Oh, the song was the sixth single off this record. Yes. And make it into the U.S. Top 40 as well. So It also uh, managed to chart in Canada and New Zealand. Oh, you crazy, crazy Kiwis. Pretty good. Uh, oh, boy. I can't stand the rain, Matthew. Really? 
Well, I actually love the rain, but the next song is called I Can't Stand the Rain. Oh. Now, this is definitely an interesting song that I can get into. The song was originally recorded in 1973 by Anna Peebles. That version got to number 38 on the charts, uh, but would be known more for its distinctive electric timbali effect that dominates the song. Yes. Um, it's very cool, very catchy. Um, and here's one for you. It was one of John Lennon's very favorite songs. Really? In fact, he said in a Rolling Stone interview that, quote, it's the best song ever. Wow. Of this version? Of any song. This is his favorite song. No, he, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I mean, the yes. Tina Turner version. No, the Anna Peebles version. Okay. I was like, uh, didn't he die? Yeah, so the, no, the Anna okay. Peebles version. So it's pretty high praise. Uh, in 78, the disco band Eruption released their own version of the song. Nothing innuendo about that name. Nope. Please continue. That version reached number six on the dance charts, 18 on the top. 100, becoming a bigger hit than the original. Tina's version was not released as a single in the States, but was in the UK, was a minor hit. But her version replaces the timbales with a keyboard, but it is still very effective and cool. And this is definitely a song that sounds like Tina is having fun with. Um, She does a lot of cool stuff with her voice, slides up into her head voice and stuff, are great. It's really nice. It's It's a good tune overall. And I like the drum part as well. That was played by Graham Broad, who was also uh, who also has a very extensive resume. Uh, most recently, playing with Wa- Roger Waters. Ooh, was it? Uh, what do you got? Oh, yeah, here, have a little listen to it. You got a little listen? Yeah. I can't stand the rain against my window, bringing back sweet memories. I can't stand the rain against my window. This song so feels like a precursor to a future hit of Tina Turner's Goldeneye. Oh. A lot of even like the, the that that sting right there at the Bing. end of the that reappears in Goldeneye. And I, I it, hmm. it feels like a sort of spiritual precursor to that. Ooh. Which is very interesting to it's me. It's like eleven or twelve years before it, right? It is, yeah. Because Goldeneye, I think, was ninety two ish. I said I thought it was later. Maybe ninety four. That sounds more right. Somewhere between 1990 and 2021. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's narrow it down. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, you better be good to me. All right, I will. Also, that's the name of the next song. First side closes out with another one of uh, Tina's biggest hits. Originally written by Mike Chapman, Nikki Chin, and Holly Knight, and recorded for Knight's band Spider. You know the story about Nikki Chin, right? No. So he received a songwriting credit for this, even though he didn't do any work on the song whatsoever. Because he had a deal with Mike Chapman where they shared all their credits. So it was a Lennon McCartney situation. Exactly. Uh, Nikki Chin did not do anything on this song, but got credit for it. So, hey, good for him in his pocketbook. Exactly. Uh, did you look up Holly Knight by any chance? Uh, I read a little bit about her, but I didn't make a whole lot of notes. I do have a quote from her, though. Yeah, she was a hit machine. She was. Love is a battlefield. Ragdoll, Ragdoll, The Warrior, mm-hmm. Obsession by Anna Motion. Who doesn't love that too? Yeah. What What was the quote? Uh, so, an interview she did with Song Facts a few years ago, Holly Knight said, "Quote: You can see how much she, referring to Tina, respects the way the song sounded because she's not a writer. Although, in my opinion, the only sh- only song she ever wrote was one of her best, which is Nutbush City Limits. Mm-hmm. She's very good at hearing something and appreciating how it was done and leaving it that way." So you can really hear the original singer doing it, who's a white girl that had a very soulful voice. Ah. Which I thought was very interesting, because usually when you cover somebody else's song, all they talk about is the differences. They're like, oh, well, they did it in this really heavy version, or they did you right. know, a much more acoustic version. I like that she was like, here's all the parts that sound the same. And it was very respectful. I like that. Here's a little clip of it, if you uh, have never heard it before.
Rupert Hine played all the instruments on this except the guitar, which was played by the Fixes guitarist Jamie West Orham. It also had a guitar uh, guest appearance by Jeff Beck on it. It did. He's in a few of these songs. Yes. Yeah. Background vocals again by Cy Cernan. Some garbage, garbage guitarist nobody's ever heard of before Jeff Beck. It's. <laughs> I know we've talked about him before. <laughs> So this, the song would uh, it would hit number five on the charts. You couldn't get Eric Clapton or Jimmy Page. No, you had to get Jeff Beck. Uh, also won a Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance, Turner's Fourth of the Year. Mm-hmm. It's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, and I would say that this is also semi-autobiographical as well. Or at least it fits in well with Tina's story, even though she didn't write it. Yes. Basically telling her new lover that she hasn't been treated well in the past. Like. And you... Better treat her the way she deserves to be treated. It's a good tune. I especially like the should I that she sings, like it kind of at the end. The should I? Yeah. And she kind of gets like whaley at that point. It's very strong and powerful. I it's, dig it. I like it. This one is a little bit of a hint of, I think, the Tina that's about to happen. Right. Like, I feel like the way she does this one, even though it is a cover of somebody else's song, I think it's hints at musical choices that she makes that and, are like, this is where I want to go. Right. And marrying the pop sheen. With her old R&B stuff. Yeah. And this is kind of that in the middle spot. Um, there's also a great version of this song by uh, Paul Rudd, who lip synced it on The Tonight Show. It's pretty <laughs> hilarious. So I'll get a link of that, throw it in the show notes, because I think it's absolutely, it's funny as hell. <laughs> but Kyle, we should, uh, let's stay together. Let's do that. Uh, Al Green version, yeah. amazingly popular. Come on. One of the most popular songs probably of the 60s. Uh, 70s. 70s. I'm sorry. I meant to say 70s. I even have it written in the 70s and I did not say it. Uh, one of the most popular songs of the 70s. Randy can edit that out so I don't sound like a jackass. Uh, no. Originally written, written by Willie Mitchell, Al Green, and Al Jackson Jr. And if this song sounds completely different than the rest of the album, that's because it is. Yes. Song was produced as a single back at the end of 1983, separately of this record. And but, like I mentioned earlier, it was the success of this single that caused Private Dancer to get made. Yeah. It's also a collaboration with a British band called Heaven 17. Heaven 17. Uh, which was composed of uh, Martin Ware on keyboards, uh, who's a founding member of the Human League. Uh, Ian Craig Marsh on keyboards, another founding member of the Human League. And Glenn Gregory on vocals, and he does backup vocals on this song. Uh, take a listen. I I hate the term international music. Yes. But I do feel like this fits in the international music category. How so? I don't know. Just the sound to it and the, the mix of uh, the different types of drums and, and the synth and everything fit for me. All right. I don't know why. I'll I give just... it to you. So the original version of this song reached number one on the Billboard charts. Mm-hmm. Spent 16 weeks on the chart. Topped the R&B charts for an incredible nine weeks. Al Green's version considered the 60th best song of all time. I would agree with Absolutely that. Absolutely classic. Tina's version got to number 26 on the charts, number six in the UK, Ooh. two spots higher than the original. And here is a difference you need to be aware of. Rupert Hine is involved in this song. He plays percussion, but he is not responsible for the mixing or production. And it is obvious because it is sonically so much better and more rounded than the rest of the record. It's not as thin as several of the other songs, and it has a much more full sound. I think it's my favorite song on the record. A lot of that can be attributed to the fact that I think the original song is so good. But, you know, whatever. Tina took a little liberty with the song, reversed the order of the first two verses, and that's all right, because I don't mind that. That's cool. She's making it her own. Yeah. But I... I th- it's a great version of this song, even with that keyboard solo, which is just a little <laughs> bit indulgent. But hey, I, I specifically made sure I got that in the clip, just because it's it's so wild to be right in the middle, and it's it, it is indulgent. It's really just this. <laughs> it's it's crazy, but I like it. Someone's I actually like it. Off. Right, nineteen eighty four, magic Here. year. 
Here it is, Kyle. No, not the fuck song. Oh. There seems to always be a Big Brother type song on albums back in this time period. Yes. And we I, talked about that. I feel like it's because the album is called 1984 by George Orwell. And everybody was like, oh, that album or the that book, that book is is such a big deal. Oh, 1984, 1984. And it was actually 1984. <laughs> kind of like when Prince's uh, uh, 1999, 1999. When, when it was 1999, that song was everywhere. That's Everybody's true. Like, that song, that song. Ha 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 ha. So we were all afraid of the imminent World War III, having nuclear drills and familiarizing ourselves with the fallout shelter signs. But this song isn't even from that time period, really. This song was originally written in 1973 by David Bowie for Mm -hmm. his Diamond Dogs album. Apparently, it was intended for a stage play based on Orwell's book, 1984, that never was produced because Bowie couldn't secure permission from Orwell's widow. Bitch! Sorry. (laughs) Heads up, comment. His version is okay. It's interesting. However, Tina's version, I hate this song. <laughs> this is definitely, I think, the outlier on this album that it's it's not. Uh, I, I hate uh, the thing that I think I hate the most is that not only does it sound like it's a song pulled out of a musical, the weird uh, I can't remember what they say. And here, listen to this clip at the end of this clip. So it is clunky and really not any good and seems like such an odd choice for a cover song unless you are actually trying to put the obligatory apocalypse song in there. And part of the reason is this. Lines like, they'll split your bleeding cranium and fill it full of air. They'll tell you that you're 80 and really you won't care. You'll be shooting up on everything. Tomorrow's never there. Beware the savage jaw. In 1984. I have a tough time believing that Tina was on board with this song. You know, those lyrics just don't seem like they're in lockstep with her or her brand. Well. So I don't quite get it. I think this might have been a, the timeline almost matches up. So Tina Turner may have had a little bit of a thing with David Bowie. Oh my. In the mid 80s. Oh boy. Somewhere between around the time this album was being created and it sort of fizzled out in the late 80s. According to Tina Turner's assistant, they for sure spent a night together at least once. And he tells a great story. It was in an interview for, I believe, The Sun, which obviously very reliable. That's why I didn't put it in my notes. Uh, (laughs) But he does tell a story uh, to The Sun about how Tina talked about, I guess, afterwards, David Bowie had gone into the bathroom and he came out wearing only her wig (laughs) <laughs> and was doing dancing, singing, private dancer, and uh, a couple of her other songs. Oh, man. Dancing around great. the hotel room and just made her laugh. And then apparently, uh, they were also at the time performing together. Uh, she was opening for David Bowie, I guess. And they would do a couple of songs together. And there was a part every night where he would lean in and whisper in her ear. And apparently that night, she just burst out laughing on stage after he whispered in her ear and couldn't keep it together for a few seconds and then recovered. And she later told her assistant that Bowie had leaned in and said, my cock still hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a good story. Fair enough. Uh, Obviously, again, how true that is, uh, I have no no idea. Um, We will probably never know. Nobody will probably ever know. Uh, But- he did tell it to, you know, a fairly unreputable source in the sun. So uh, it could just be for fame and fortune, or it could be a real story. But who knows? It is potential because that's what got me looking into this was why is there suddenly a David Bowie song on here that is is a, an unusual cover that doesn't fit with the theme of this album, no. that doesn't fit with the time of this album. The only thing that ties it in is it is a song named 1984, and this album came out in 1984. Okay, so the, the rest of my notes are just shit at that point. Because <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna rip on that line that beware the savage jaw. It's such a shit line. Oh, it is a horrible line, and it doesn't make sense at all. I hate, I hate the song, and it detracts from the rest of the record <laughs> entirely. And I think while most of the record suffers from production is- issues in the long term, I generally have no problem with the songwriting. However, this one, I really do. Yeah, it's terrible. Well, if I'm real here too, 
Diamond Dogs is, in my opinion, not David Bowie's strongest point in his career. <laughs> no. He was he was definitely a little. Uh, was uh, he at the Thin White Duke at that point? Oh or man, not quite. I don't recall. I don't have those two timelines of when his albums came out and what persona right. he had at the time. But like perpetually just wasted all the time. Yeah. I feel like that was probably Thin White Duke period. Oof. But yeah. But anyways, there could be that tie-in, and potentially this is where it began. But you're right. You who know, knows? Who, Again, I don't know. It's, it's a very vague timeline. So, uh, white claws. You mean steel claws? Steel claws. <laughs> steel claws. <laughs> Sorry, I, it, it's a fascinating song. I love this song. It's a great. It's one that's vexed me for a while. Lyrically, I read it over and over again, trying to figure out what it was all about. And it had me scratching my head about her song choices. So the song was written by Paul Brady, an Mm -hmm. Irish songwriter of really no great renown. First thing for me is how American he's trying to make this song sound. Oh, very. References Frisco in the East Coast. And I feel like it's an indictment of the government for getting all about the people that they govern except at election time. Kind of references. It's a story as old as time. But then the song gets a little darker for Tina around the bridge. And the line, sometimes... I think I'm going crazy. Sometimes I do a line. Makes me laugh. I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> did Tina Turner just reference doing a line of cocaine in this song? I believe that she did, yes. I believe that she did as well. <laughs> Musically, it's an excellent song. Might be a little bit busy for this record, considering right? the production, but it's it's good. Musicians are great. Um, great guitar work by Richie Zito. He can be heard on uh, Take My Breath Away by Berlin, Heat is on by Glenn Fry, Irene Kara's theme from Flashdance. Uh, it is really the song on the record where the musicians have a chance to stretch their musical chops. And unfortunately, because of that, the song gets a little muddy. But it's not bad. It's just confusing. Um, and I don't know what else you have. But while researching it, though, I found out on the very helpful internet, somebody's term paper from 1986, in which they use this song as the basis for thesis, Phenomenology, Tina Turner, and the law. Oh. I give you a little of that. Quote, by evoking the image of law as steel claw, Tina Turner presents us with a subjective description of what it might feel like to be oppressed and dominated by a system of abstract legal justice which ignores existing social injustices and inequities. Bravo, person. Wow. I hope you got an A. I hope so, too. Holy cow. Right? Thanks, Internet. So uh, I may have some wrong facts here. Well, what do you got? So uh, I was under the impression that Jeff Beck actually did a part of the guitar in this song. No, he did the next song. Because there's a quote from him talking specifically about the solo in this song. Really? Yeah, and he said, quote, I had this horrible guitar that was only good for the high-end stuff. Tina loved it. I was doing some grungy stuff with it, and she said, I love those high notes. Just go for it. And like me, she'd do things in a couple of takes. Uh, wants to get the balance and then just go for it. She stayed around while I was putting down a solo, but it wasn't working. And I said, look, you're better off going to dinner. And as soon as she'd gone, I just rattled one off. I don't really like people staring at me while I'm in the studio. Now, this could be my bad, but this is attributed to Jeff Beck talking about this song. So potentially he might have been mistaken and thought that they were talking about another song on Private Dancer. But Oh, they both played. Oh, there we go. Richie Zito and Jeff Beck both Guitar. So we learned something new. We're both right. Right. Jeff. That's never happened before. Played the tasty solo. All right. Good news, everyone. Mia culpa. Not your fault at all. I was just worried. I was like, oh shit, did I miss this? Did I screw this up? (laughs) I see. I probably was more. uh, I was more impressed with the phenomenology, Tina Turner and the law, and I just screwed up with the guitar. Fair enough. I I mean, it. uh, I was really taken aback by that. Like I said, I'm just glad it turned out to be true. You should read that whole damn thesis. It's unbelievable. We'll have to put a link in the show. Holy crap! It goes on for many, many pages. I took one line. Here, uh, have have a little listen to this song. So, if you haven't heard it, you know what we're talking about.
There's a fantastic live version of this that she does on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Really? And she's literally like at the beginning, she's dancing and she rips her dress off and it's a shorter dress and she's oh, yeah. dancing around and the energy is so friggin' high. It's awesome. I like that. I also cannot believe this song is not more popular than it is. It sounds so much like proud, the end part of Proud Mary. Mm. It is so like upbeat and exciting. Yeah, there's a lot of energy. Yeah. I, I cannot believe that this is not a more popular Tina Turner song. But I would tend to agree. Here so it is. What? Unless you got more on that. No. Okay, here it is. What? The title song. Title track, final song. Private Dancer. Clocks in at over seven minutes. Long song. Standout track for a lot of reasons. One is because it's obviously a song about a stripper. That stripper being Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of stuff and doing the research for this that they're like, it's about a hooker. I'm like, no, mm, I, I see stripper so. with maybe occasional added benefits, but not so much hooker. The second is how this song came to be. The song was written by Mark Knopfler, guitarist and lead singer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees Dire Straits. The band that brought you the Sultans of Swing brings you Private Dancer. The song, why not? The song was originally intended for the the band's fourth album, Love Over Gold, and the band had completed the backing tracks for this song, but Knopfler felt that the lyrics weren't right for a dude to sing, so they cut it from the record. Tina wanted the, the song, but a bunch of legal loopholes prevented her from getting it. So she would eventually just hire most of the Dire Straits band, the drummer was replaced, and re-recorded it and replaced Knopfler's guitar with Jeff Beck. Because you've got him in the wings, why wouldn't you? Knopfler was not impressed with the new track and said that the song was ruined by, quote, them drafting in Jeff Beck to play the second worst guitar solo in history. Wait, I added his second ugliest guitar solo in history. Second ugliest? Yeah, I think you're right. Second ugliest. Why the second, Kyle? I don't know. Because then you always leave room for something to be a little bit worse. <laughs> That's why second. But it does leave me with this thought. If I'm reading the lyrics of this song correctly, and I'd like to believe that I am, mm -hmm. you may be able to get your money for nothing, but he can't get his chicks for free. <laughs> oh. hey oh. The sound of the song is just as provocative as the lyrics are. Yeah. Very sultry. Allows Turner to be her hip-shaked self, especially in the second part of the song. And now that I listen to that guitar solo again, uh, which I did in the in the research, mm -hmm. it is pretty lousy. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. It's pretty meh for a big pop song. And as I've harped on all episode, it really suffers from uh, the recording techniques being yeah. used at the time. It's thin. But it's a fitting closer to her comeback album. I would agree. She was making a statement on this record that she was wanting back in the spotlight and willing to completely reinvent herself as a pop soul queen to do it. And so that, you know, that's Private Dancer. All in all, it really isn't one of my favorites that we have done. And I think most of that is how soft it ended up sounding. And I don't mind soft rock. even enjoy listening to Yacht Rock on uh, yeah. radio to some degree, but the production just knocked the balls right out of it. I, I would tend to agree with you. I think that it is a, a good album. It's worth a quick listen, but it's not one that somebody, I don't think there's anybody that's returning to listen to the album over and over Correct. and over again. The hits, absolutely. Sure. People, these are going to keep coming up over and over and over again. For the, for the rest of but time. But the whole album, you listen to it once through and, and then move on. And I do believe that it is one of the classics of the period and Absolutely. deserves its spot there, but it's a product of its time for sure. So uh, we do have to end this on a little bit of a sad note, though. Oh, what's that? Because uh, I got to talk about Tina Turner now. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Tina Turner is now in her 80s. Mm -hmm. um, she was still going strong up until about 2013. Uh, she married her longtime companion, Erwin Bach, in 2013, and at the same time renounced her American citizenship. Uh, they both live in Switzerland. Swiss. 
Uh, sadly, uh, about three weeks after their marriage, she had a stroke in 2016. She had, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. 2016. She had intestinal cancer mm. and a kidney failure in 2017. Wow. Um, I, I didn't know any of that. Thankfully, Irwin, uh, her longtime companion, uh, was a match. And so she got one of his kidneys, which I think is very sweet. Um, also, sadly, in 2019, her son committed suicide. Uh, presumably, she believes because he was very lonely, which is very sad to me. Um, she has also hinted recently. So in 2021, March of 2021, she actually came to the United States uh, for the premiere of the musical Tina, the Tina Turner musical in New York City. Mm-hmm. Never heard of it. Sounds fascinating. I want to see it now. Right. What she didn't tell anybody until she was already here and started doing press and things for it, she was basically here to say goodbye to her American fans. She is living in Switzerland because they have a right to die with dignity there. Right. And she has hinted several times that basically she is going to, when things become too painful or or too much for her, she will be passing on into her next whatever with dignity. Okay. So- Sad, sad ending. Uh, I thought thought it was yeah. probably worth a mention because it is so recent, and it will absolutely sadly probably be sooner than later that that will come to take place. But she's in a good place, and she's she's talked about it publicly and said she's happy with the things that she's done in her life, and she's happy with where she's at now. And she'll she might be around for five or ten more years, or mm. she might be around for five or ten more months. So well, sad, but legend. Right? She gets all the accolades that she deserves. You know. Yeah. So let us know what you think about Private Dancer and tell us uh, how wrong I am and that the production used in the mid 80s is the best ever and I suck. <laughs> so you can reach us on Twitter at Audio Judo, Facebook at Audio Judo, or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. Uh, if you would prefer to send us a long winded explanation on the merits of Private Dancer or maybe even your thesis, you can send it to <laughs> info at audiojudo.com. And uh, maybe you hate this record and want to hear something that you like. Well, there's a way to do that. Kyle yeah. knows how. You can help influence what we pick on this show. Uh, you can become a patron, uh, help us produce the show, uh, for $5 a month. You get what we call the front row seats tier, which includes a two day early access to episodes, a shout out on future episodes as a loyal producer, bonus mini episodes that we call judo chops that are a lot of fun and occasional bonus content, such as unedited interviews, behind the scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes. You can also at that tier, uh, directly message us on Patreon and we Pay pretty close attention to all of our messages, but if you message us on Patreon, we might pay a little bit more attention to those. Oh, yeah, and we're trying to figure out how to get you to tip us. Yes, we're working on that. It'll be, be soon. Give us a tip. Yeah, uh, just the tip. 15%. You can also, if you really want to influence the direction one of these episodes goes, you can stand up for the Backstage Pass, which is $20 a month. That includes a very special personalized gift, uh, a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo of your choice. Uh, That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. And you get all of the benefits of the $5 a month front row seats tier. Absolutely. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention our other podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz. That show is a 16-part exploration of the jazz legends of the last 75 years or so. It was hosted by our show consultant, Chris. It is fascinating educational and worth a listener to you check that out at audiojudo.com forward slash aj dj or anywhere that podcasts are podcast so coming up we have episodes from joy division sticks bob seeger and many many more other than that we will talk to you in two weeks bye bye everybody take care out there It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 